0: Episode 20 of By Our Own Hands The following day, Mr. Grierson led the sheriff and his men to Mr. Murray's barn. The sheepskins were carried out and taken away. Everyone was talking about it by midday. I sat in the kitchen with Mrs. O'Donnell and Mrs. Berry as they worked on the midday meal. Sally was at my side. They spoke of little else but the murder investigation. I kept myself quiet so that I could learn as much as possible. We had made a pact. I would share any details I learned with them before I told anyone else, and they would allow me to listen to them while they talked over what they had learned. I had new details, but I wanted to hear what they had to say before I shared anything more with them. I did not understand what I had heard, and I was hoping that their details could make sense of my own. "'It was Mr. Murray all along. He stole more than three dozen sheep,' Mrs. O'Donnell said. "'Are they certain they were Mr. Adair's?' Mrs. Berry asked. "'Yes, certain as they can be. The sheepskins had Mr. Adair's mark,' she answered quickly. Mrs. Berry nodded. "'I did, too.' Everyone knew that sheep were usually marked with a small stain of color to identify the owner. It was called painting. It had been done for ages to distinguish one man's sheep from another's. Mr. Adair's blue paint was on each skin they found, Mrs. O'Donnell added. Mr. Grierson told the sheriff that he saw Mr. Murray clean his gun the night before, The sheriff said that someone had probably exchanged the magazine, I said. Mrs. O'Donnell and Mrs. Berry both stopped working. They stared at me. Mrs. Berry's eyes widened. Love, will you do something for us? Mrs. O'Donnell asked in a whisper. Yes, of course, I said. I knew that I was going to be asked to do something exciting. I jumped up from my chair. Mrs. Barry gave Mrs. O'Donnell a questionable look. "'You have sometimes sat in Mr. Adair's study with your mother when Mr. Adair is not at home,' she began. "'Yes, mother said I could as long as Mr. Adair was away,' I said. Mrs. O'Donnell nodded impatiently. "'There is a large cabinet near his desk. "'Do you know which?' she said before I interrupted her. "'Yes, it is his gun cabinet.' Mother has forbidden me from ever touching it, I said. Mrs. O'Donnell frowned. I watched her fight the urge to argue with me. Mother told me to never touch the guns in that cabinet. She didn't actually tell me to never touch the cabinet, I added. Mrs. O'Donnell brightened up. Well, then, you will not defy your mother if you do this for me, she said. I smiled more broadly, which encouraged her. She walked to me and took Sally's leash. Go to his study. Look inside that cabinet. There is a large drawer at the bottom. It is the only large drawer that is a part of the cabinet. You should see a few magazines, she added. I wasn't sure what a magazine looked like. I had never heard the term before that morning. Mrs. O'Donnell must have known this because she grabbed a small piece of wrapping paper from the counter and began to draw with a piece of chalk. She drew a rough sketch of a gun magazine. Look in that drawer for anything this size and shape. Tell me how many you find. And whatever you do, be careful that you are not caught, she said. I hurried out of the kitchen and ran to the study room. I stopped at the door and took a deep breath. I heard Mr. Adair's voice coming from the drawing room. I knew that I was safe as long as Mother was not in the study room. I carefully opened the door and crept inside. Mother was not there. I ran to the cabinet and stopped before I could open it. Items that were the right size and shape to be magazines were laying on Mr. Adair's desk. There were two of them. I opened the cabinet and looked inside the large drawer at the bottom of the cabinet. It was empty. I began to quickly search the rest of the cabinet. I was careful to avoid touching the guns. When I finished, I heard footsteps approaching the door. I panicked. I looked across the room and saw that a very plump chair was opposite the cabinet. I ran to the chair and hid behind it just in time. Mr. Adair entered the room. I knew that he had not had a chance to leave the drawing room earlier because I had spent most of the morning eavesdropping. He had been trapped in the drawing room with the sheriff and his men. I wondered if he was searching for mother. I held my breath. My heart was pounding. He went straight to the desk and gathered the magazines. He opened the cabinet and placed them in the bottom drawer. He quickly closed the cabinet and walked out of the room. I counted to 100 before I ran to the door. I slowly opened the door and stepped out of the room. I looked in both directions. The hallway was empty. I quietly closed the door behind me. I ran to the kitchen. I burst into the kitchen. My heart was still thudding in my chest. I had to catch my breath before speaking to Mrs. O'Donnell and Mrs. Barry. They both eyed me expectantly. He had two magazines on his desk. None were in his cabinet. When I finished checking, Mr. Adair entered the room, I said. Did he see you? Mrs. Barry asked, her eyes widening even further. No, Mrs. Barry, I hid myself, I said. Thank goodness, Mrs. O'Donnell said, breathing a sigh of relief. That is not all. When he entered, he went straight for the magazines and put them away, I said. They both exchanged looks. Are you sure there were only two? Mrs. Barry asked. I nodded. He owns three. He bought them from a man that came to the house a few months ago. I remember because he was angry that the man did not have more to sell, Mrs. O'Donnell said. Perhaps he has gotten rid of one of the spares, Mrs. Berry said. I doubt it. They were very expensive. He is extravagant, but he is not wasteful, Mrs. O'Donnell replied. I was still confused as to why these magazines were so important. Sally made her way over to me and sat on the floor near my feet. Mrs. O'Donnell, why would someone change a magazine, I asked. Mrs. O'Donnell and Mrs. Barry exchanged knowing looks. I looked at both of them impatiently. Mrs. O'Donnell sighed. Very well, but this is not to leave this room. Do you understand, love, she said. I nodded. Mr. Murray's gun was a revolver. A revolver has a turning revolving chamber. The balls are put into the chamber. When the gun is fired, the chamber turns and another ball is available. That is why a revolver can fire several shots in a short amount of time, she said. I understood this much. And the magazines are the revolving parts of the gun, I asked. Yes, men often buy additional revolving chambers or magazines. Most revolvers have detachable magazines, she said. Her explanation caused me to remember something I had heard earlier but had not understood. The sheriff said that Mr. Murray's chamber had a protruding ball, I said. Mrs. O'Donnell and Mrs. Barry both inhaled deeply. Did Mr. Grierson claim that Mr. Murray had fired his gun after he had cleaned it? Mrs. Berry asked. Yes, he did, I said, remembering another detail that had made a great impression on the sheriff. I looked from Mrs. O'Donnell to Mrs. Barry. I could see an unspoken communication going on between the two of them. Someone put a bad magazine in Mr. Murray's gun, so that he could not shoot the people that killed him, I said. Mrs. Berry nodded. Perhaps, but the magazines could have been exchanged after he was killed, Mrs. O'Donnell said. I stared at her. Mrs. Berry turned pale. What if Mr. Grierson is lying? Mrs. Berry asked. I quickly responded and grabbed Mrs. Berry's arm. Mrs. Berry, the sheriff said that Mr. Murray's gun was clean and well cared for, I said. We all fell silent. I knew then that someone had planned to attack Mr. Murray and had tampered with his gun so that he could not defend himself. The alternative was that someone killed him and then exchanged the magazine so that it would appear as if he had tried to shoot his attacker, but was unable to when his gun refused to fire. In either scenario, Mr. Murray knew and trusted his attackers. If the former occurred, only someone he trusted would have access to his gun. He carried it with him everywhere because he knew that he had infuriated many of the tenants. If the latter occurred, then he knew and trusted his attackers because he didn't try to fire a shot. Mr. Murray had been murdered by people he knew and trusted who had access to Mr. Adair's spare magazines. There had only been three sets of footprints. As if reading my mind, Mrs. O'Donnell spoke softly. We will have to see who runs first, she said. We did not have to wait long. The following day, a funeral was held for Mr. Murray. Mr. Adair insisted that every member of the household staff attend the funeral. It was held outside. The church service was scheduled for the following day. I stood by mother and held her hand. We arrived early and were able to watch as people arrived. The rain had stopped falling, but the ground was still wet. I did not want to attend, but I knew better than to argue with Mother. Mr. Adair paid for everything. Mr. Murray's casket lay next to a freshly dug grave. I let my gaze wander around the cemetery. I watched as members of the household staff arrived. Then the Scots began to arrive few of the mourners were mourning Mr. Murray. Suddenly I heard excited whispers. I turned to see what the commotion was and saw that Mr. Rankin had arrived with Mrs. Murray. I was struck speechless by the fact that he arrived wearing the jacket that Mr. Murray had always worn. I looked more closely and saw that he wore pants that were a bit large on his frame. They, too, were Mr. Murray's. Even the hat on Mr. Rankin's head had belonged to Mr. Murray. I looked around and saw that I was not the only one that had noticed. I looked at Mr. Adair as he glared furiously at Mr. Rankin. Mr. Rankin just gave him a grin and then looked down at his shoes. Mr. Murray's shoes. I did not pay attention to the service. I couldn't pay attention to anything. I was too excited. I wanted to rush back to the house and tell Sean. I knew that he would be absolutely shocked at Mr. Rankin's audacity. I almost smiled at the thought of it, and then a terrible thought struck me. Mr. Rankin was boldly wearing... Mr. Murray's clothes, even though such behavior would arouse suspicion. Such suspicions could easily lead to an arrest. I realized that he did not fear arrest. The only reason he wouldn't fear arrest would be if he believed that he was protected. The only person powerful enough to protect him was Mr. Adair. I looked at Mr. Adair again. He was still glaring at Mr. Rankin. I looked at Mother. She had turned deathly pale. I knew then that I was correct. Mr. Adair was protecting Mr. Rankin, and there was only one reason he would bother to do so. He was somehow involved in Mr. Murray's death. Over the next month, a detailed investigation was carried out. The sheriff investigated all of Mr. Adair's claims, from the poisoning of his dogs to the fire at his outhouse and found any claims he made to be false. On some days, the entire household was subjected to the rantings of Mr. Adair as he argued with the sheriff. The sheriff investigated every lead he received. He found that Manus Rodden, and all of the McSweeney's had alibis. The cases against them were easily cast aside. William Deary's testimony was completely fabricated. He was charged with perjury and was eventually sentenced to hard labor. In the months following the murder, Mrs. O'Donnell's words proved prophetic. First, Dugald Rankin assaulted a lawman and was arrested. He was sent to jail for a term of more than a year. Mrs. Murray disappeared as soon as Mr. Rankin was sent away. Archibald Campbell also disappeared once it became clear that the investigation would not lead to a conviction of one of the tenants. The only one of the Scots that did not disappear was Mr. Grierson. He was promoted to Mr. Murray's previous position. We have finished our midday meal, and we have drunk multiple cups of tea. He has patiently listened to my tale. There were three sets of footprints, Doctor, I say. He nods thoughtfully. Mr. Rankin and Mr. Campbell probably were two of the killers. There was one more set of footprints, I add. He nods again. I know that I should not ask him to agree to more. I should feign tiredness and ask to leave. It would be the polite course of action. I have taken up at least three hours of his time. I believe he did it, he says, in a voice that is so quiet that I can barely hear him, even though I sit very close to him. His admission surprises me. The fact that he wasn't fooled by Mr. Adair does not surprise me. I was not either. Mr. Adair always took advantage of those he believed to be beholden to him. I knew that he had paid too much attention to me when he had visited the Glebe house, but I had explained it away as nothing more than a vestige of his lingering feelings of tenderness towards my mother and his sadness at learning of her passing. When I returned to the castle, I had feared that he might wish for me to take my mother's role. I had hoped that I could avoid his advances and that he would eventually lose interest. After I had found his gift waiting for me, I had sat on my bed and tried to decide how to tell him that I wished to return to the Glebe house after so short a time in service at his residence. I knew that he would be insulted. He would probably be furious. I kept his gift near me as I tried to collect my thoughts. I named her Little Sally, Sal, since she so resembled Sally. After about an hour, I finally decided that I would speak to him in the morning before Mrs. Adair joined him for his morning meal. I knew that she was not an early riser. I would tell him that I was leaving. He would not have much time to react, and he would have to be guarded to prevent an embarrassing scene. I slept fitfully that night. The following day I rose early and quietly made my way downstairs. I went to the library room first, but I did not find him. I walked throughout the castle and finally heard his voice coming from the dining room. I was surprised. I knew that he enjoyed taking his morning meals in the library room, at least he had when mother was his mistress. I took a deep breath and walked towards the dining room. I guessed that he was speaking to a servant. I was only a few feet from the door when I heard Mrs. Adair's voice. I cursed under my breath. I began to think about the possibility of leaving without any explanation. I wondered if he would have the audacity to complain to Mrs. Matteran. And then I heard another voice. I knew in an instant that it was Dr. Foxlows. Mrs. Adair, I am surprised and so pleased with your offer, he said. I held my breath and crept closer to the dining room door. It was slightly ajar. I knew that they had probably not yet eaten and would be occupied for some time. I would have to wait until later in the day to speak with Mr. Adair. I placed my hands on a small table that was against the wall to steady myself. No, no, that will not be necessary, Mr. Adair said. His voice was friendly, but I could also hear a rising tension in his tone. He was not pleased, but he was making an effort to be light-hearted. "'Why not, my dear?' Mrs. Adair asked, with a touch of irritation in her voice. "'My dear Nathaniel, I think you are a capital gentleman. If we were in need of a doctor for the estate, you would be my first choice,' Mr. Adair said. "'We have more than two dozen tenants. The nearest doctor has recently retired. We do need a doctor.' Why not have one on our estate? Mrs. Adair asked, softening the tone in her voice. Mr. Adair sighed. Our estate has—how shall I say this? Mr. Adair asked. He chuckled. I heard him sigh again. Our estate has too many tenants. I bought this land to rear sheep. I don't need two dozen tenants, he said. Silence followed. Someone cleared their throat. "'I guessed that it was Dr. Foxlow.' "'You plan on ridding yourself of your tenants?' "'Dr. Foxlow asked. "'Well, yes, of course. "'It must be done. "'It will be for the best. "'The plans I have for this estate "'will not bode well for the tenants. "'They will be better off elsewhere,' he said. "'Our dear tenants rely,' Mrs. Adair began. "'Oh, my dear wife, you do not know what I know.' Believe me, you do not want to be surrounded with tenants if you can help it. This country is full of rogues. Our dear tenants will cut your throat as soon as they will smile at you. None of them can be trusted, he said. When do you plan on ridding yourself of your tenants? Dr. Foxlow asked. As soon as I possibly can, Mr. Adair said, chuckling again. I will tell you about my previous troubles, And then you will understand, he added. Excuse me, Dr. Foxlow said. I heard his chair move. I looked about. A small tray lay on the table that I had been leaning on. I picked it up so that I would appear to be working. I turned away from the dining room door just as it opened. Nathaniel, come back, Mr. Adair shouted in a jovial tone. Dr. Foxell walked out of the room. He stopped when he saw me. I blushed up to the roots of my hair. Excuse me, miss, he said. He stared into my eyes when he said this. I did not answer. The look on his face told me that he knew that I had heard the conversation. He stood still staring at me for a few moments, and then he walked away. I waited for him to leave the hall and then I returned to my room. I sat on my bed. I felt desperation. My heart beat faster. I wanted to run back to the Glebe house, but I knew in my heart that I could not return. I thought of Mrs. Adair and fought the urge to pack my things. I actually stood and looked at my bag, but if I ran back to the Glebe house, what then would I do? I sent I sat back down on the bed. I knew I had a role to play. It was my role. I thought of Father O'Keefe's words. That which is the most difficult to embrace is that which you are called to do. I wondered if this was my calling. I did not wonder for long. Yesterday, Dr. Foxlow drove me back to the Glebe house when our visit had ended He told me that he would call on me again today. I know that his admission was a confidence. Does he trust me, or does he simply want me to think that he does? I want to trust him. I want to live, too. I must be careful. I must know more before I can ever trust in him. I know that his disgust at Mr. Adair's words when Mr. Adair had spoken of ridding himself of his tenants, had not been to gain my confidence. He had not even been aware that I had been listening to their conversation. I knew then that the doctor was not cut from the same bolt as Mr. Adair, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I can trust him now.